0: Hi, everyone, and welcome to Academic Dean, where we connect with passionate college leaders who share their stories and viewpoints of higher education, especially lessons learned along the way. Now, here's your host, Dr.
1: Dave Gurchak. Hi, everyone. Today, I'd like to welcome Dr. Kelly Otter to our show. Dr. Otter is the dean of the School of Continuing Studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., Hi, Kelly, I'm excited to have you on our podcast today.
0: Hey, David, it's so great to be here. Thank you for having me.
1: So tell me about Georgetown University and why students select your institution.
0: Oh, many reasons. Uh, Georgetown is a um, uh, one of the oldest institutions in the nation. It's the oldest Catholic and Jesuit institution in the nation. And in the heart of D.C., it has grown up always as a very diverse institution with a global outlook and has really grown with the needs of the region and the the nation and the globe. So our school in particular, the School of Continuing Studies, is one of the newer schools, but really serves as a, a mirror of the society and how it is evolving Demographically, economically. And so our mission is to take that best of, of the Georgetown quality, our expectations for excellence, our expectations of social justice, and to fold all of that into programming that is highly relevant and of high value to students and helps to prepare them to be uh, very strong practitioners, leaders, um, and engaged thinkers with a solid value system across all kinds of professions. So I would say that that, uh, that's kind of the core of who we are and what we do.
1: So when did the School of Continuing Studies launch?
0: It launched officially in 1970. It was uh, (laughs) chartered in 1970. uh, uh, Before that was not a school, it was a a, a division or center that offered summer programs, uh, non-credit certificate programs, but then it started to offer a Bachelor of Liberal Studies, and then a couple decades later added a Master's and Doctorate of Liberal Studies, and then in the 2000s we started to develop professional Master's degrees. And so we have a very diverse portfolio. We serve people uh, in high school. We have pre-college programs that are growing, uh, especially after the pandemic. They're able to grow again because they're, they're uh, residential programs. We serve uh, that, that pre-college student, adult degree completers. Uh, adults who need professional master's degrees, and we do custom education, uh, uh, non-credit-bearing certificates, international education, English language programs. So it's it's incredibly diverse, and it really touches on the entire life cycle, the academic and professional life cycle of of the learner.
1: Yeah, you know, since you said it was newer, I was I was thinking, not fifty years.
0: Well, see, we think in terms of hundreds of years at Georgetown.
1: Yeah. yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is so then when was Georgetown founded? Uh, 1789. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I remember I was at a university, and, and ours was 1900, and we were so proud of that. So, oh, my goodness. Oh, that's, you're just
0: kids. That's, that's
1: right. <laughs> so, what's new at the School of Continuing Studies?
0: Well, uh, all, all kinds of things. Um, we are uh, uh, like everybody adjusting to uh, what we have, have learned and experienced over the last few years. And we are adapting to to living in a moment of researching and planning for, for the audience that we serve in a, uh, a continually con- uh, turbulent environment where it's, it's harder to project. And, and to predict what students are going to need when. Uh, we really have been focusing on that graduate professional uh, market for, for quite some time. And as everybody knows, the, the, the demands and needs of that, of that audience are shifting as we are in an environment where the um, uh, unemployment rate is quite low, but interest rates are quite high. Um, and people are making these decisions about Uh, How to participate in the world of work and how and when it's a value to participate in uh, educational programs. So we're really looking at the content of what we're offering, but also the, the modalities. We've done an awful lot with online education over the last several years, and we've taken a multimodal approach where there's high flexibility. Students can be online students and they can come in and take a, a course uh, um, on ground as well, if they like, and vice versa. So we're looking at the the, the content, the alignment with uh, the industries. We're looking at what's the most efficient way for students to complete degrees. Maybe we need to be more creative about offering courses once a week uh, for 15 weeks. Maybe we need to be thinking about how to offer enough flexibility, but not too much choice for students because it can be overwhelming. Uh, Students really do want efficiency. Uh, They want to be able to plan. They want to be able to apply their education when uh, they're they're, uh, ready to move in back into the workforce or up in the workforce. And we're thinking about all of those those other kinds of issues around certificates or or building in concentrations that are very skills-focused and new ways of attracting students and helping them understand where our programs are by aligning with employers and aligning with the workforce and, and really kind of blurring that line between school and work but allowing them to, to, to be a more cooperative and collaborative, co-generated experience.
1: So how is your college uh, adapting to this changing need of workforce and the employers? Well, we're
0: looking at the really the ways we, we reach people. We, we were pretty strong and, and unique years ago in our development of, of strategic marketing resources, We've had a solid team in place for for quite some time, and of course we had admissions, but we take uh, a, a focus on admissions that is around enrollment management. So we we really think about the the um, the student experience from inquiry all the way through uh, being an alum. So we we have those resources, but we're uh, we're realizing that because there is so much. Um, increased competition in the, the, the traditional channels, it can be overwhelming for, for, for students to understand one school, one, you know, one school next to another, a program next to another. So we're looking at, at ways that we can, again, meet the student or the prospective student where, where they are. So we're we're investigating and researching different kinds of avenues, different kinds of channels that um, can align us with the employer around helping to assess whether a particular student needs to complete a bachelor's degree. How can they use their employee benefits at Georgetown to complete a bachelor's degree? Uh, What kinds of assessment tools can we help employers uh, develop if they don't already have them through their HR and talent development teams? and where can they assess the the skills that they need to retain and grow their workforce by collaborating with an educational partner who has the expertise to engineer those programs and help this help the students grow the skills and then help the employer assess the impact of those skills so we're looking at many different kinds of channels beyond just simply marketing. Everybody's doing marketing, marketing's becoming increasingly expensive and increasingly not accurate and not reliable. So we don't see just increasing digital marketing as the answer. We don't see that as sustainable. We're looking at lots of different
1: avenues and channels. Interesting. Well, let's switch topics. Let's talk a little bit about you. So so talk about the path that led you to become Dean at Georgetown.
0: (laughs) Well, it, it was. Uh, I, I didn't didn't plan to do this. I, I, I I'm very fortunate. I, I come from a family that places a very strong value on education, and uh, have some very fascinating stories for another podcast about how uh, my people in my grandparents' generation made major life sacrifices to provide themselves an opportunity. To get education, back in the day when nobody was doing that, um, you know, leaving your family in North Dakota to move to Kentucky to go to an institute, you know, or you know, selling a business in Mississippi to to move out of state so you're you could help your kid get an education. Um, it, it's just it, it's woven in uh, to to my DNA that 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 education is uh, one of the most important things we can do to um, assure quality life, have a sound democracy. Uh, have an engaged citizenry, and um, all of those those things that uh, that we all value. But I originally thought that I would become a teacher. So when I I pursued my PhD at NYU, that was my intention to become a faculty member. But at the same time, I was working as an administrator, as I was working on my PhD, and I started seeing inside the uh, the whole enterprise of the institution, I was, I was at New York University working on my, my PhD. And I started seeing those decisions that administrators have to make. And there were differences between the way someone who was accustomed to being in the classroom would make a decision about resources and someone who had never been inside the classroom as a teacher making decisions about resources. And I just became very committed to keeping that perspective of what should guide us as administrators is protecting, nurturing, and helping, helping flourish what happens in the classroom. That's what we're here to do. And whether it's in the walls of a classroom, whether it is a virtual classroom, that is what should drive us. What does the student need? What does the faculty need? And how do we produce and disseminate knowledge for where the students and faculty are are looking to be in the future. So I I fell into it and I fell in love with academic administration. And I uh, uh, have stayed in the classroom in in different ways, but I I went from from NYU out to University of Pittsburgh for nine years. And there, I established uh, an online uh, program and infrastructure, started understanding the needs of veteran students, Mm. stood up a a veteran services office within our school. Uh, At the time, it was called the the College of General Studies. And then from there, I went up to Northeastern University for a couple of years, which was in strong contrast to uh, to, uh, being in a state-supported institution. Uh, there was a very sophisticated and robust infrastructure around online education at Northeastern. And there was much experience already working with strategic partnerships and alliances. Uh, So that was altogether a a different kind of of environment in which to be entrepreneurial and innovative. And then from there, I came to, uh, to Georgetown where I was able to bring all of that together. The undergraduate experience, graduate experience, Technology-mediated education um, and an entrepreneurial approach to pedagogy and program development with an eye toward workforce and economic development.
1: Hmm. Well, what has been your proudest moments for you at the university so far?
0: I I think that the the thing that always gives me um, uh, the most joy. Well, it, it, a couple of different things. The the most joyful moment is when students are successful. When you see the student um, proudly sending you an email telling you that they got a promotion or they got this new job or that they won a grant or they started a new business and they link their joy and their pride to the, the support that they had from their faculty, from their program teams, from, from uh, me when I and it happened to be so directly involved. Um, those are incredibly joyful moments. I also find it um, uh, just incredibly gratifying when a school of continuing studies is invited into the traditional forums in a a research university to ask us how we did something or to ask us to to teach them about something that we generated or that that we we produced because our model is so different from the core of the institution. So when we uh, develop an infrastructure for online programs, for example, uh, or when we Um, have a a really tight, effective way of doing marketing and recruiting. When the rest of the institution wants to replicate those things, that is an incredible source of of pride for us.
1: Well, what do you think are going to be the major challenges for universities over the next five to 10 years?
0: So I'm thinking, uh, if, if I only think domestically, uh, we, could, we could take a global view of that, we could take a domestic view of that, but I think that there are there are going to be similar challenges if we look at the global level. Um, and there, there's going to, but there's going to be, um, I, I, I think a leaning toward in, in certain directions. Um, so just staying focused domestically for a moment. Our demographics are shifting. The numbers of students participating in higher education are, are declining and at different rates, at different locations around the map. Yet we have, and we have declining birth rates and we have uh, lots of tension around migration. And there's there's tension around, um, uh, you know, bringing people in from other countries and educating them and, and you know, helping them participate. But I, think that the institutions that are going to thrive and be strong in the future are already adapting to these changes and recognizing that the students' needs of the last 20 years are completely different from what they are now, and they will be in the next five, 10, and 20 years. And that means looking at what we're teaching and how, what we're preparing people to do, who is teaching them and how, and how our institutions are structured. Of course, we're, we're we're all watching how some of the smaller schools across the nation have really been struggling, and, and some are really struggling to keep their doors open. Well, let's look at their let's look at their infrastructure and let's let's look at what they're offering to whom. And oftentimes they're they're continuing to try. to to reach back to the days of the past and keep that in the present and the future, when what really might need to happen is to reimagine what the need needs to be in the future. Everything from the kinds of majors offered to maybe we need to be in a more interdisciplinary kind of of, of world. Um, Are students working and going to school? Can Can they afford to be residential students? Are you looking locally at the the needs of your particular locale, the workforce needs in your region? Or are you punching above your weight and trying to to, to market nationally when you really need to be focusing on a a, a regional community that you could be serving? So I, I think that regardless of the institution, we have to be thinking about how our audience, who we're educating for what kind of world and how we design ourselves to prepare for that. And I think a companion to that is, who are the partners that we need to be working with to do that? We're always collaborating in higher ed. We we collaborate with uh, other higher education institutions across the world. We, We collaborate with nonprofit organizations. We've always collaborated with industry. So how do we continue to do that when the world of work is changing so dramatically and so quickly. And with the the advent of technologies requiring um, analytical skills to be much more commonplace than they were before. It used to be you could have a data analyst. Now we need data analytic skills across all of our different functional areas. And there are really no organizations that that don't have that same kind of challenge. Yet we're still educating people. Um, in in a way that is um, not, not accepted that reality. And that's I think that's going to be huge. how we, how we retain the, the the best the core of, of the content and the, uh, the ways of, of, of coaching and mentoring students into the habits of mind that we want them to be able to develop, um, being very globally aware, very analytical, but also having the skills, to conduct certain kinds of of research that they need, Uh, data-informed decision-making abilities that they're going to have, and high-level abilities to communicate in in written form, in meetings, and working in teams, working with groups of people who are going to come from across cultures. Those are uh, are the abilities we need to be preparing students to, to, to embrace and excel in.
1: So you you mentioned uh, early on you you were a I'm sorry you were a uh, an administrator. So I'm going to refer to that as an academic leader. So when when did you become an academic leader? Hmm.
0: it's kind of a philosophical question. I would say that I became an academic leader technically in uh, the, the years that I was at NYU. Okay. Okay. So but
1: then. then- so then, from then until now, what's been some of the biggest lessons you've learned?
0: Oh, um, I think the uh, one of the biggest things that I've learned about um, well leadership is that it is a um, it's the ability to constantly learn to navigate new spheres. right? I learned very early on that the framework of a hierarchy was less effective than for me of a framework of a network and, and the framework of spheres. So I think you know oftentimes we have to use that, that framework of a hierarchy to explain levels of authority and, and levels of responsibility and so forth. But, the, but that framework breaks down very fast when we try to map it on to the way we actually do our work. And I realized that in, in my earliest managerial positions that I was not on, on, on top, right? I was in the middle. I was the center of this network. And yes, I had more authority and yes, you know, I had to make decisions about how much time I spent making what kinds of decisions or being involved in what kinds of projects. But there was, I had to be at the center of all of it and be accessible to all of it. I had to be knowledgeable about all of it. So I have to be able to be uh, literate in um, each of the areas of of people who were reporting to me because ultimately the person leading is the one who has to make the decisions about the vision. And so the more responsibilities you take as you, you grow up in your career, the more spheres you need to manage within. And so one needs to lead with people who are at your level you need to lead with people who are accountable to you, reporting up to you, and you need to lead in spheres when you're a follower. And it's it's imperative for the leader to recognize what is, um, you know, who you are as an individual and that the conditions, your interior conditions, and how you are able to communicate and lead Inform, provide judgment, direction, recommendations, insights, pushback—all of those in different ways in these
1: different spheres. Gotcha. So I realize it's kind of abstract. Yeah. No, I I, I understand. I understand uh, completely. Um, you mentioned earlier about online education. How do you see that platform evolving for both faculty and students over the next few years?
0: So um, I always thought, since I started working uh, with uh, technology back uh, in the early 2000s, I always thought that the these uh, uh, this bifurcation of online versus on ground would break down, and of course, it is breaking down. We use technology in the classrooms. We use technology and platforms to to teach people uh, in um, you know in a, in a remote or or, or distant fashion but that line is becoming much more blurred. So the the tools that we use have been thought of in terms, largely in, in, in my sector, they've been thought of in terms of outreach, in terms of accessibility, but we also need to think about them in terms of pedagogy, how we can use these tools to aid the learning process. And of course, we've been learning all about that for the last 20 years with different kinds of experiments in classrooms through centers of, of teaching excellence. But, but they benefit all kinds of audiences. So the, the, um, the, the old fashioned model of the sage on the stage, the person sitting in a room and talking to you and you taking notes, um, is not good pedagogy. That is very poor pedagogy. We learn through interaction. People learn through interaction with each other. And we can learn through interaction with tools. And where there can't be that in-person interaction, the tool can facilitate that that human and that 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 uh, you know tool material interaction with, with the student. So there's there's a blurring of the line. And so online education, yes, is going to increase accessibility but it also needs to continue to increase that interpersonal connection that is also part of the learning process. And I think we're actually, we're going to have, I hope we're going to have hybrid universities, not just a hybrid course, but hybrid approaches at the college and university level where we can reach students who can be in the room with tools and with with the human interaction, and we can reach people with the tools um, who are only remote, but give them just as much of a, a quality experience, you know, with with the the materials, the presentations, the activities, the case studies. Uh, if they can come to campus, the interpersonal reaction interaction doesn't have to only take place in the classroom. It can take place in co curricular activities, through advising sessions, with uh, you know team projects with students. We need to to think about what the tools allow us. To to produce an event that's around the experience of the interactivity rather than it's just this or that, just online or on ground.
1: Yeah, you know, I'm starting to see, and this is a little bit off base, but I'm starting to see gaming really pop in, you know, virtual reality. And I'm just, I'm just kind of excited of where that's going to go in the next 10 years for education, because I can imagine students would have a strong that would have a strong impact on students.
0: I, I think we're we're going to get there. I I don't know much about how long it's going to take. I know there's a fabulous research going on, but I I totally agree with you. And the but and, and the core is the interaction. It's it's you know it's using the tools to interact with materials and with and with humans with people. And we're we're only going to get more sophisticated at doing this. We're I think we're still it's, you know we've been doing this maybe 20 years in this way. And we're still in the embryonic stages of, of, of discovering what we can do with technology, learning, and pedagogy.
1: Yeah, good point. Um, so I'm going to use the word non-traditional students, but basically I just mean students over the age of 25. I don't I don't think that's non-traditional anymore, but what are you guys doing for um, not the regular kids coming right out of out of high school, right to college? What are you doing for them to kind of move into the university system?
0: Well, that's the student we're dedicated to. And we do see them as the, the they're not the, as you said, the traditional student who's a residential student, but they are the largest population of uh, of undergraduate learners. And of course, we, we focus on undergraduate and graduate learners. So what we do is we build a community around their experience. We understand that they are adults, that they're working at least part-time, if not full-time, they have responsibilities like families, like homes to manage. And at the same time, they're curious and they're driven and they want an education. They have goals. They want to be able to study in a place like Georgetown that, that has a, a strong history and, um, and a, um, a, a very specific set of values and principles. So in our uh, uh, infrastructure for these students, we we want to make it very clear and very simple what the pathway is for them to come into the programs. We make it very clear to them who their program support teams are, where they can have the the support from the uh, from the you know academic and compliance team if they might need mental health resources, if they need some financial aid advice. We make it very clear that those resources are right here, like located in in one building. We're very fortunate that uh, we've had uh, for the last um, about eight years, eight, nine years, our own building in in Chinatown. We're going to be moving in a couple of years. The university is establishing the uh, capital campus just a mile away. So we'll be co-located, but we will still have a, uh, a building that students can walk into and have everything that they need. At the same time, we are making sure that all of those resources are available uh, virtually, um, mm. so there's, we don't see the online or, or on-ground student. We see the student, and we want to make the the education, the resources, the support, uh, all of the wraparound services just as accessible, no matter where they happen to be.
1: So, since you mentioned uh, services, what can colleges and universities do now? For- for mental health. I know in the last couple of years, that's been a hot topic. And so just not mental health of students, but also mental health of faculty and staff. Yeah.
0: We are all facing these, uh, these challenges, which are increasing. Initially, uh, I think one thing we were, we were um, faced with is taking a close look at our interpretations of, of rigor and workload. And we may not have been um, as, as thoughtful about what the, what, the, what the students and faculty really needed as, as we should have been. And we had to sit down and really look at what are the competencies that we want the students to, to come away with? Do they need to read a thousand pages a week or can they read you know, 200 pages a week and, and apply their, the, the readings and the learnings to activities in which they're producing, creating something new. Uh, and that's, a, that's kind of a, uh, an extreme example, but it illustrates the point that w- what are we really asking our students to spend their time doing? And what is their, 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 their disposition, right, and their attention to those activities? And it is our responsibility to, to know what that is, because we are designing the educational experiences and we are guiding the students toward the learning outcomes and we are responsible for measuring those outcomes. So we need to be mindful of of what that workload is and what the experience is. Um, I think we also have to be mindful of um, the kinds of interpersonal um, uh, interactions that we have when we're in a shared space. We're doing a, 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 a much better job now of making decisions about, does it need to be a Zoom meeting? Does it need to be in person? And I've I've always been very concerned about this because uh, we've all sat through meetings where there hasn't been a a, a real clear agenda or a clear statement about what each person needs to contribute to this discussion and what we're hoping to, to get from it. And there are so many times we don't need to be in the room with each other to have a transactional exchange. But we might very much need to be in the room with each other if we're working on something that is highly complex and where there may be some emotional tension involved. That's, and we need to th- think these things through. So in my school, we're pushing anything transactional to uh, a, a tool-based format. And to the extent that we can, because we've been, we've been as, as liberal as we could about people you know, moving outside you know, a commutable area uh, to be able to retain talent and also to be able to attract talent. So it isn't always feasible to ask everyone to be in the room with each other, but, but you can do it to a certain extent. So we, we need to be very respectful and very explicit about why we're coming into the room together and what is what it is we need to to be able to accomplish with that human
1: interaction? Good point. Excellent points. Um, here's a fun question: If you had any extra budget money right now with no strings attached, how would you spend it?
0: Well, my staff and faculty want me to say, uh, and I and I do believe <laughs> that I would immediately give them a twenty five percent raise.
1: <laughs> you, you, you sound like a dean to me. That's a good answer. <laughs>
0: Um, and, and of course, those of us who work in, in nonprofit organizations uh, all share the same, the same concerns, right? We wish that we could pay people more. Uh, we just had our, our wonderful uh, VP of Benefits come do a, a, a talk yesterday to help all their, our new staff. We have upwards of 40% uh, new staff since the pandemic started at the institution wow. and within my school. So, a uh, huge opportunity. to to cultivate and support a culture of, of, um, uh, of community and helping people recognize that yes, in higher education, nonprofit institutions, we may not be as high paying as some other sectors, but it is a unique community and work environment that has tremendous benefits so let's let's talk about the nature of the work you're doing the kind of professional development and support you'll be getting the expectations that we have around working in teams and mentorship and coaching and our our benefits officer showed us the the array of benefits that we have that most of us didn't even know about so um so that's, that is really um, uh, in, important. Yes, I'd like to be able to pay people more, but we offer an awful lot of value here. Um, I also, if, if, if money were no object, I would love to be able to have forums or, or some kind of a, uh, uh, you know, a center or an internal think tank where we could bring some of the best thinkers we know in higher education uh, from across industries, Mm. uh, people from technology, the ed tech space, and people who are um, just good thinkers across an array of areas and and, and come in and have uh, just uh, guided brainstorming discussions about how we can solve for particular issues uh, from the perspective of, of of online professional education, this, oh, this idea, right yeah. this this is not a, a unique idea. But um, for example, I've been thinking a lot about the the problem of of information integrity in our world. We have programs in my school in journalism, in public relations, corporate communication, integrative marketing, and these programs were designed or conceived of in a day when the the, the structures, the business models of of journalism, gathering news, disseminating news uh, still looked like they they did in the the 20th century. But all of that has shifted. It's not going back. It's changing dramatically. So as educators, how do we address this matter of increasing information integrity um, and prepare students and align with organizations and businesses across sectors to make the kinds of movements in the direction that will be be positive for our society and, and have all of that feedback into our educational programs. And so that would take some resources, and I, I yeah. think that that would be very productive and a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, that, that really does sound like a lot of fun. So here's my last question. Do you Do you have any favorite books on leadership? that you would recommend to either somebody just starting out as an administrator or even current administrators right now?
0: Well, in terms of somebody starting out, um, I think that uh, this is gonna sound a little unconventional, but I do think this is a value. Uh, We have a a program in uh, the School of Continuing Studies, which is, is called the Institute for Transformational Leadership. So we teach people how to become executive coaches. And what one learns in reading these executive coaching articles and research, uh, the, the name Daniel Goleman uh, comes to mind. He's a, he's a a very popular writer uh, on uh, leadership, emotional intelligence. The the, the a, a key to leading is understanding yourself, hmm. and one of the some of the most important skills revolve around the ability to listen. So understanding the levels of listening is key. And you'll you'll see this across different kinds of, of, of leadership uh, uh, approaches and different writers. But most people get by with level one listening most of the time. And that's just not effective for leadership. Uh, one has to understand what your thought process is. And so what can you read and or what kinds of workshops or activities could you uh, find for yourself to help you really understand your own attributes um, as a leader, where your strengths are, where your weaknesses are that you want to, to be able to develop? And it's not a comfortable process identifying your weaknesses, but it's imperative. So I, I think about the leadership coaching, some Daniel Goleman mm-hmm. um, uh, kinds of resources, um, and um, I, I think that would be um, initially some of my, my, my best advice.
1: Well, those are excellent points. Well, Kelly, thanks so much for being on our show. I really enjoyed our conversation.
0: Well, thank you, Dave. So good to meet you. And it was a pleasure to be here. I appreciate it.
1: Well, that wraps up today's episode. Thanks, everyone, for listening.
0: Thanks for listening to today's episode. And make sure to visit our website at academicdean.com for additional information. Also, if you enjoy our podcast, please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.